You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the ERA Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name's Tina Quinn. Welcome to the program. This week we have a special one-on-one with the founder of The Conversation, Andrew Jaspin. Seeing The Conversation turns 10 today, we thought it would be a good opportunity for Andrew to return to Fourth Estate and tell us all about how The Conversation began and how it's going. Andrew Jaspin's career is obviously too long to go into here, but he is a former editor of The Age, The Sunday Herald, The Observer and The Scotsman, and he's also the founder of The Conversation. He is currently the editor and director of the Global Academy at Monash University. Andrew Jaspin, welcome to Fourth Estate. Thanks very much, Tina. So as we go to air in Sydney, the conversation has just turned 10. Happy birthday to the conversation. Could you tell us how the conversation came about? Because it all started when you found yourself in one of those career crossroad moments in your life. What happened and, and how did you come up with the idea? Thanks very much, Tina. Uh, sorry, I joined the age in 2004 uh, in October. And as my Christmas present from, from Fairfax, I was asked to make 50 people redundant before Christmas in 2004. Um, And the reason for that was um, same problem as all newspapers, revenues were collapsing and they had to take costs out. So um, I really didn't like the fact that I arrived to try and reinvigorate the age and found that I had to take people out. But, you know, that was what I was asked to do. and, And as a new editor, I guess I just went along with it. And that happened pretty well every year, sometimes twice a year, redundancy rounds. And what was really happening, to cut a long story short, was the the specialist journalism. Some of the very best people just walked out and took packages. And many of them just went to to other newspapers or um, in in the case of, for example, Steve Bartholomew's, who was one of our business writers. He moved to Business Spectator and that sort of thing. But I just saw really good people walk out. And then there was a final cull, which I was part of, of 550 journalists at the very end of 2008. Um, And um, I'd spent quite a bit of my time in our management group arguing against constant uh, cost cutting, because I said, look, at the end of the day, if you keep cutting, there'll be nothing left and the readers will realise they're being shortchanged and, you know, there'll be a real problem for the paper. So anyway, I was kind of rewarded with being asked to go um, for putting those kind of arguments forward. (laughs) Um, And um, I then got, I mean, during my time at The Age, I became friends with, as you do when you edit to The Age, with a whole sort of range of interesting people. But one of them who met me on a sort of reasonably regular basis was Glyn Davis, who was the vice chancellor of Melbourne University. Um, And we kind of found out that the, the graduates of Melbourne University, their first choice of read was the age. So there was a kind of a good uh, a good match between the two. But we had many discussions about all sorts of things because Glyn, when he was at university, uh, wrote his final thesis on um, the story of the ABC, um, you know, how the ABC came about and all that. And it, for my final thesis in the UK, I actually wrote about the BBC, uh, but I looked at the BBC in terms of balance, impartiality, etc. So we kind of, you know, just got, became, I, I suppose, friends. Anyway, I left the age and I got a call from him saying, what are you going to do next? And I said, I'm not sure. I said, well, let's meet for a coffee. And um, when we sort of ran through what we're going to do, and by the way, I said to him, there's a few things I don't want to do. One of them is going to PR or, or anything like that. I said, Go over to and the dark I don't want side to write. as it would. 
the dark side. <laughs> uh, um, but I also said I didn't want to do what a lot of ex-editors did, which is kind of write these this sort of stream of what's gone wrong with journalism pieces. And you, you've no idea how much has been written by ex-journalists about, you know, what, what's gone wrong. I said to him, what I'd like to do is see if there's a different way of creating high quality information uh, and making it widely available to the public. And he said, mm, okay, well, look, um, good luck. I don't know how you're going to do that, but um, what I'm prepared to do is give you a desk and I'd like to introduce you to some of my smartest uh, thinkers at the university. And I thought, oh God, that, this is great. Not knowing where this was going to lead. Anyway, next thing is he kind of introduced me by email to, to 10 people. And they're all people from earth scientists, astrophysicists, Nobel laureates, um, a whole range of people in different areas across the university. And by the way, that's one of the real strengths of the university is that it covers the universe of subjects, you know, so you've got everything really there in one place. Anyway, I met them all um, and, you know, had long coffees and discussions. And it suddenly sort of occurred to me, I had one of those sort of eureka moments, you kind of think, do they really happen or not? But they did in my case. I suddenly thought, my goodness, these are the smart people I would love to have in, in my sort of virtual newsroom. Wouldn't it be great if I could just have these people writing, you know, for me? Because um, every single one was a, a really deep subject matter specialist, you know. So I thought, wouldn't this be good? That was the first thing. The second thing is talking to Peter Doherty, um, who's who's an immunologist, um, he was just saying to me, he was really fed up doing interviews with journalists. And I said, why is that? And he said, because at the end of every interview, I always think to myself, how badly will this interview turn out? You know, can you imagine that? You know, it was never a case of how good it would be. And I thought, well, hang on, something has gone badly, badly wrong here. So I said, so, so what's the issue? He said, well, you know, they, they, they quote me and then put it uh, out of context or they selectively quote me. And at the time, um, and I'll give you this one small example, there was a new uh, flu um, strain had hit Australia and the chief medical officer had sort of sent out all these warnings about it. And Peter said to me, you know, with this new flu strain, if you're under the age of, um, let's say 10, I can't remember exactly, and over the age of 70, you really should be worried. But otherwise, there's enough herd immunity and, you know, we, we, it shouldn't be a real problem. Anyway, he said, next thing is, you know, he read a piece which said, the headline was, Peter Doherty says this flu strain is, is not a problem. And he got a call from the chief medical officer saying, why are you contradicting my advice? And Peter said, well, because what they've done is lopped off the beginning, which said, you know, if you're under 10 and over 70, it is a real issue. Otherwise, you know, you should be okay. So he said, look, there's an example where I give an interview and it just goes badly, badly wrong. And I end up getting, getting it in, in the neck from the chief medical officer. So he said to me, look, Andrew, I tell you what would be really good. And this was the final bit of the conversation. He said, if you could, rather than sitting across the desk from me, um, metaphorically, if you could actually sit next to me and we could work together where I give you my knowledge, you shape it into good prose. Um, and once you've shaped it, could you let me see any change you've done so I can make sure you haven't introduced any errors? And then if I'm okay with it, bingo, off we go. So that was really the secret of a, of a new partnership between uh, editors, uh, professional editors, 
and academic researchers brushed away from that yeah. and wrote it all up into a 15-page proposal because I wanted to detail exactly what the proposal was, how it would work, what the website would be like. It was going to be a digital-only offering. And then I delivered all that back to Glenn Davis um, because I was working as a consultant to him. And he said, wow, this is a very, very good idea. Um, let's see if we can make it work. So the initial response in those those days must have been quite interesting, I would imagine, bringing together academics and, and journalists. Was it hard to get the vision taken up? No, not at all. But l- let me tell you, once I'd sort of worked it all out, th- there's another bit that happened, which is um, talking to Glyn, because I initially did that work for Melbourne University. And he said to me, um, look, if you don't mind, could, could we involve other universities in this and not just Melbourne Uni? And um, I said to him, oh, that would be so much better because if it's just Melbourne University, it becomes news from Melbourne University, Mm. which in a sense is another form of PR because every university, as you probably know, has PRs, a lot of them ex-journalists, who go in and essentially write up good stories about how well the university is, is doing this, that and the other and new research that's doing and new appointments and, you know, all that kind of stuff. All that is, frankly, PR. But by bringing in the whole sector, suddenly it becomes, you know, a a much more believable uh, offering because you're going for the best rather than the best in a single university. So what Glyn did was he rang up four or five of his mates, um, other VCs, and um, within a very short order of time, we had um, Monash University. So we had Melbourne, Monash, ANU, U- University of Western Australia, and UTS all came to the party offering 200,000 a year for three years. And we wanted three years because we wanted a proper runway to make sure we could get the idea well and truly established. Then I went to the Victorian state government and they matched that. So I'd raised 3 million, then suddenly it became 6 million. Then I went to see Julia Gillard, who at the time was the education secretary in the federal government, and she matched it. So there were 9 million. And then through a contact of mine, I met somebody at Commonwealth Bank of Australia, and they agreed to be our technology partner and put 850000 a year into developers, which we built our own web platform. So suddenly we had $10 million, um, and um, that allowed us to then uh, build a site recruit a team and start working. However, to answer your question, people said to me, you know, before the launch, they said, good luck with that because academics can't write um, or they won't write. Um, They're hopeless uh, in terms of deadlines. They're really sloppy. They won't stick to deadlines. Uh, It's a nightmare. Don't bother. You know, it's just not going to work. So there's that kind of level of skepticism. Um, Frankly, and this was based on my discussions with umpteen academics at Melbourne University and elsewhere, uh, I'd become convinced that actually they did want that academic researchers, particularly those who see themselves as public intellectuals, actually see that it's part of their job, part of their role, if, if they're funded by taxpayers to, do, to, to teach and to do research, that actually they'd like to share their knowledge more widely the problem was, and this was this is where the conversation comes on, they didn't know how to safely get their uh, knowledge out to the wider public. And I just came up with a way of doing that. They all bought into it. And to date, 20,000 out of the 100,000 academics in Australia have contributed to the site. So it, you could say, well, that's only 20%. That's right. But 20% is a lot of 
people in your newsroom because they all yeah. are registered mm-hmm. to write. And you could say 80,000 don't want to write or can't write, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So, so that's kind of where we're up to. But we have created a safe space for them to get their knowledge out uh, to the public and the public really have lapped it up. So you've talked about you've talked about it from the perspective of academics and how a lot yeah. of them actually wanted the opportunity to get their work more widely read and 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 get their uh, their ideas and their research out there. What about from the side of the journalists? You know, academics and journalists, they've always operated as closed shops really before the conversation. Yeah. What was the sort of reaction you got from journos and what, did you get any pushback from them? Well, um just before I go into that, another issue, Tina, I'd like to just mention why academics to me were a good source to go to is that I was very concerned at the time, and you've got to remember this was 2010 that I mm. kind of came up with the idea. Even back then, I was really worried about not just a, a, a diminution of um, diminution of the quality, but also I was really worried about the, um, about the sort of... Um, trust aspect of a lot of content you know could you actually could you actually rely on the content you were reading in other words did you know that this was going to be accurate or was it spinning something to you and what I really liked about talking to academics because I I never went on campus by the way after I left university I kind of went into into journalism and just never came back and uh, as you say the two are kind of close shops to each other Um, so this was my first time back but I discovered that that, that academics or universities have very, very strong codes of conduct around how they behave, how they operate, how they do re- their research. Um, and to me, um, and by the way, they do peer, uh, peer review, you know, so there's a form of fact-checking that goes on. So to me, this was really high-grade information that could be used. Whereas, you know, even amongst a lot of journalism, and you, you'll be familiar with all the uh, the scandals and issues, particularly in the UK with phone hacking and all sorts of stuff, there was real mm. question mark over the, the morals and ethics of, of some journalists or some sections of, of journalism. So I was kind of quite happy to work with academics. Now, to answer your question, I'd like to do it in a slightly circuitous way as well, which is this, that the main sort of pr- providers of ideas and information to society between about the 12th century in Europe and the 17th and 18th was universities. They were the main sort of area. In addition to that was the church through things like the Bible and religious tracts. But universities really were the main supplies of information about astronomy, physics, mathematics, law, all those kind of areas. Um, Then journalism kind of took over and used sharp elbows to kind of nudge academics out of the way. In a sense, the media or newspapers became the fourth estate, um, uh, meaning, you know, that its role was not only to provide information, but also to hold those in power uh, to to account um, and, uh, and to scrutinize everything they did. And that became the role of the fourth estate. And then, and then what happened was um, that uh, the business model of journalism, you know, since pretty well the 17th, 18th century was kind of around advertising. And that model slowly fell apart um, during the um, kind of early 20th, 21st century. Um, it's from 1995 onwards, strains began, began to appear. Uh, and it got really bad from about, you know, 2007, 8 onwards. 
uh, with the uh, GFC and then the reduction of advertising, et cetera. So mm. the, in a sense, my feeling was the fourth estate was falling apart and there was a, an opportunity for universities to step back into the arena of becoming the providers of high quality, accurate information. So I thought that was a very important new development. And in a sense, the, the first to really move into that space was the conversation, you know, to actually uh, in, in partnership with, um, with academics, as you know, the slogan of the conversation is journalistic, uh, sorry, academic rigor, journalistic flair. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of that partnership between the two, which came along in terms of the journalists that we hired, um, these journalists were um, really, for some reason, um, really interested and intrigued by this idea. And they still have a very big role in terms of commissioning, discussing ideas with academics, editing, uh, checking, um, and then adding uh, links where necessary, choosing photographs, writing the headlines, writing the intros. You know, there's, there's still a lot of journalism goes on. But then before it's posted, there's one final check back with the author just to say, look, I want you to be happy with everything, no surprises. Mm. So I was trying to avoid the Peter Doherty issue with surprises afterwards. And once they said, no, it's all good, the picture's good, the the headline's good, it's all accurate, bingo, off it went. So it was a a real partnership. And, you know, all the journalists working on, on the conversation really enjoyed the experience. Well, you've got, some, you've got, got some brilliant, you've really got some brilliant talent uh, working mm. for the conversation. I mean, Michelle Grattan, obviously, when she came on in, in 2013, that was a really brilliant addition to the team. Uh, the lines between academic so with, and... With, with, sorry, with Michelle, just want to let you know, when I was at The Age, um, I just got a certain rapport going, just Michelle yeah. and I just um, essentially just one of those situations where we got on and I really liked what she did and really highly mm. respected everything she's done as a journalist. Mm. And she rang me up after launch and said, can I join? And it just took me a while because we don't actually hire journalists per se to right. write. We hire professional editors and our writers are academics. So what I had to do was secure an academic position with for her, which I did at the University of Canberra. Canberra. So she left the, the age and joined University of Canberra as a professor there. And um, her role mainly, I mean, she did do some internal teaching and lectures and so on and so forth, but um, mainly she just wrote for the conversation. And that gave a huge profile to the University of Canberra as well, because her, her articles are amongst the best read. She is the best fact checker in the business. Yeah, yeah. I think because she's such a stickler for yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and people go to her, Tina. People go to her because they know. I mean, she she's famous for ringing people up late at night saying, yes. "I just want to run this by you. Can you just let me know if I've got this right or not?" Mm. Now, to me, that is that is what high grade journalism should be about. That when she puts something out, it's accurate. The person reading it knows it's accurate. Mm. And people forgave her for ringing up late at night to check things. I mean, you know, I've heard this story so many times. But, you know, that is the mark of her her work. And as such, because she's trusted, she also gets has extremely good uh, Mm. network of contacts. I mean, they like going to her because they know she'll be straight with them. Tell us about the first year after the following on from the conversation launching. As a young startup, was it smooth sailing or? Yeah. So the first thing, Tina, which was, um, I mean, you know, sometimes you go in hindsight, I wish I'd done this, that and the other. But 
I'd been I'd spoken to too many other startups who um, who kind of said that they were undercapitalized. And what happened is just when they seemed to be about to succeed, they ran out of money. Um, you know, because all my view is I have a very simple matrix for things that work it's in, in terms of new starts. They need to be one, a good idea. Two, you need to have people who can actually execute the idea. Um, and three, you need to be properly capitalized in terms of funded. So my thoughts were we had a good idea. You know, I built a good team, I, I think. And we also, from the very beginning, I wouldn't launch unless we got three years money. And, you know, um, Glyn Davis, who was kind of instrumental in all this, um, helped me secure other universities who took a punt on three years commitment. Mm. So when you ask how to go after the first year, you know, it could could have been that we fell off, you know, the cliff after the first year because we kind of ran out of money and nobody was reading us. But that first year, um, I made a decision, by the way, not to spend anything on marketing and advertising. Instead, what we did was I kept the idea very much under wraps, really closely under wraps, so that when it came to the launch, I was able to get lots of free publicity. So we had loads of articles all over the place um, on this new idea. And, and I timed it so that the articles would only come out at a time when the site was live. So people would read it and then go, oh, I must have a look. Um, so we got a lot of free publicity in, you know, from the ABC, from newspapers, from uh, all over the place. So it went, it went very well, and we couldn't believe how quickly people were beginning to share our content. So it kind of went viral very, very quickly. And we just watched every day, the, you know, the, the readers doubling pretty well. And that's from a low base, you know. So the first day we maybe attracted, let's say, for argument's sake, 1,000 readers, but the next day it was 2,000, and the day after it was 4,000, you know, a day, that is. And so it kind of went on. Uh, but also because we were working with 39 newsrooms around the country, every university, sorry, 39 universities around the country, every university was also plugging, you know, the start of the conversation as well. So there was kind of uh, a number of ways that we, we got, you know, recognition that the site had launched. So the first year went very well. Um, there, there was one kind of thing which I, I kind of wonder if I did right or wrong, which is this, that after... Um, a few months of it uh, starting um, because we started in March and around April, May uh, in 2011, um, I got an email from um, a guy who's organizing a big conference on the future of higher education or the future of universities, one of the two at Toronto University, but it was organized by the Chronicle of Higher Education, which is a kind of, you know, their, their um, equivalent of, the, the, the main sort of trade journal for the university sector. Um, and they asked me, because they'd seen the site, and the guy running it was very excited about it and said, would I come? And I said, well, look, we only launched, you know, a couple of months ago, and I, I really need to be here. And he kept pestering me and, you know, was offering me, you know, flights and hotels and all sorts of things. And at the end of it, because at that time, my mum lived in the UK, and I thought, well, I tell you what, if I because the conference, I think, was over a weekend or something. And I thought, well, maybe it was Thursday, Friday. And I thought, well, if I go and do two days Thursday, Friday, then I can get a flight to London, see my mom, and then be back in Australia, you know, <laughs> on the Tuesday or whatever it was. So I kind of did that. But as a result of that, I got all, because after that, I, I, I took the train down to Boston, mm -hmm. which isn't too far away, and spoke to some people there. And they were really interested in, in 
looking at whether they could launch. And then when I landed in London, I went to City University, which is the main journalism or one of the main journalism um, places to, to study at. And um, the vice chancellor there was very, very keen on the idea and said to me, you know, if you decide to launch, I'd like you to, I'll, I'll supply you with some space here to be a base. So suddenly I had interest in the UK and US within months of the launch. Um, and that became quite distracting because I then ended up um, having to raise the money to get it going because I had to go over there and, um, and I finally got, I think it was about uh, eight or 10 universities to put money up, which was enough to launch. And then I had to go there and lead the launch. I, I flew one of our best editors, a woman called Megan Clement, um, out to London to actually um, run the launch for the first six months. Um, and, and then a similar thing happened with the US, uh, where I ended up also being the CEO of the US operation because the board of directors there wanted me involved, which was mad, absolutely mad. And I now wish I'd never agreed to that. But right. they kind of said, well, we're not going to launch unless you know you agree you know to be the CEO and editor-in-chief, as it were. So I kind of again, had to raise the money there. Um, and I spent, I mean, for example, I did a two-week trip to the US, um, which was organized by somebody I was working with at the time. And um, he got me um, he got me running around 16 foundations in, in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, Chicago, Boston, uh, New York, Washington, and then finally Miami um, for the Knight Foundation. So I visited, I think it was 14 or 15 foundations, and six of them agreed to give us money. So we, so then that secured two million to allow us to launch into the US. You know, but in answer to your question, I, I think I was kind of distracted by all that, and and in retrospect, I think I should have found a way to avoid that and the way to have avoided it was not to accept that flight to Toronto to go and talk right. about the conversation. <laughs> well, for a small Australian startup, the international reach of the conversation is really impressive, incredibly impressive. Was it, yeah. was it part of the original vision to go international? No, no, no absolutely not. Yeah. You know, I hadn't, hadn't really thought about it. I think, and, and again, it's difficult to put my mind back to where we were, but I think we thought, in fact, when we launched the site, we were covering everything. So, um, do you remember the disaster at Fukushima in Japan? Mm -hmm. You know, we, we covered that out of here and we covered, um, you know, the UK elections out of, out of Melbourne and we covered the American elections and anything big that happened in any part of the world mm -hmm. we covered. Uh, so everything was done out of Australia. So I think we initially probably, because we hadn't really thought it through, and I think we just thought, um, um, or I just thought, you know, we'll do everything from Australia. And then, as I said to you, as a result of being lured to Toronto, I ended up, you know, because I told lots of people about it at that conference and people were really intrigued and rushed off to have a look at the site. So we got lots of interest coming in. Um, and then suddenly when the UK launched, they said, well, you don't need now to worry about, you know, issues like the UK elections and later on Brexit and everything else, because we'll do that. And by the way, we'll also do the whole of Europe out of London. And then when we did the US, you know, that meant because the UK site was covering the US as well for a while. And when mm. the U US site started, they said, well, you know, you can now just focus on Europe mm. and the UK because we'll now do North America. Um, and so it kind of went on like that. 
Um, but when I was raising money um, for the US side, I went to the Gates Foundation in Seattle and met, you know, really great team of people there. They were really excited about the idea. And they said they'd fund the U US site, but they said uh, as a condition of funding the US site, they wanted me to uh, also launch a site into Africa because the Gates Foundation is really interested in Africa. Right. You know, it's kind of one of their focus areas. So suddenly I was offered money to launch into Africa. So I then had to get in touch with some journalists um, and uh, spoke to them. And they said, oh, God, that'd be great. You know, we'd love to do it. So that kind of happened. And in the same way, while I was raising money for um, the US, I met a guy called Fabrice Rousselo, who was a colleague. I'd worked with him at Liberation Paris many, many years ago. And um, he was in New York and came up to Boston where I was. We met and talked about it. He said, I'd love to do this in France. So I then helped him get going into France. Um, and um, I was trying to get some money from an organization called Open Society Foundation in London for the conversation. And they said, well, you know, we'd love to help you launch a new site, you know, rather than give you money for the mm -hmm. existing sites. So I said, okay, well, you know, where are you interested? And they said, well, the one that we're really keen on is Indonesia. So we talked about that and then they gave us money and we were able to launch the Indonesian site. And so, so it kind of went on. It all on. kind of it really kind snowballed, of, really, from, from yeah, the Yeah, kind of a vir yeah. 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 virtuous circle, virtuous circle or, or, but the great thing is every time, and I think you picked up on this, Tina, every time a new conversation started, that went into that part of the world and really built, you know, a new yeah. audience. Yeah. So the French site is in French. Uh, there's now a Spanish site. And by the way, the Spanish site was started by a guy called Miguel Castro, who was at the Gates Foundation. So I'd met him through the Gates Foundation. Um, and I, I teased Miguel because <laughs> when I first went to him asking for money, he was very skeptical about mm. the conversation. He's now the chairman of the conversation in right. Spain. You know, Last time you were on Fourth Estate, you talked about uh, you, your idea of a, a levy, uh, so to speak, on Facebook and Google. Yeah. That idea has has been taken up, but maybe but maybe not fully. What is your view on the government's moves to, to make these two platforms pay for the news? And do you think it will lead to greater diversity in our media? Uh, the short answer is I don't, um, mm. although, you know, the jury is still out. Um, my, my view with the, the levy, and just for your listeners, I, I just want to remind what that was about. What I was mm. saying was that Google and Facebook, um, and this is a terribly important point, uh, you probably understand it, Tina, they do not want in any way to cross the line and be seen as publishers. Mm -hmm. uh, because once you're a publisher, you have all sorts of responsibility around uh, responsibility for, you, for the content, meaning you're open to you know, defamation, libel, and the rest of the publishing rules and laws, um, including you know, um, the... Um, the, the limit on the number of players uh, in that that, that um, operate in each country and so on and so forth, share of voice issues. So what they do is they refuse to get into um, funding editorial directly, but what they have done is taken out the, the wherewithal to create content. So the real issue was how do you create content? And my argument was uh, allow Facebook and Google to continue making six billion a year, which they bill, by the way, from Singapore and and uh, Ireland, so it's offshore, but force them to make a to pay a levy of say ten percent 
uh, of 6 billion, which is 600 million a year, or it could be 20% if you wanted to, 1.2 billion a year. So they still took out a huge amount of money, but uh, construct a new levy, um, which would become an independent uh, source of funding, particularly those er areas of market failure, such as the ones I mentioned earlier, regional journalism, um, specialist journalism, uh, and a whole bunch of other areas, and put that towards that. Because that way, there was an arm's length relationship between Google and Facebook. They were not directly funding editorial. They were just paying a levy. Mm -hmm. However, News Corp, and you've got to remember the history of Rupert Murdoch and News Corp, who've been hostile towards Google and Facebook for you know many, many years. Um, they largely drove the legislation in Australia. And what I fear it will do is largely benefit the big players, the established players. So because it was, I think, largely drafted by News Corp for the government. Uh, it favours News Corp and favours the other big players, you know, the nine, the nine papers and so on and so forth, or the nine network, I should say. So, um, so my, my view is it's just going to reinforce a, um, a rather weak ecosystem in Australia rather than uh, addressing market failure and addressing market diversity. So the government has has basically wasted the opportunity to to rebalance the media in Australia. That, that would be my view. Yeah, yeah, that would be my view. But you need to understand why that happens because this mm. government is reliant uh, largely on support from news corp papers and, mm. and outlets, including Sky and the others. Well, did you that, find that's it just interesting? Yeah, have. did you find it interesting then that uh, our prime minister? seemingly uh, bought the hand that I guess feeds him a little bit yesterday in a, in a quite remarkable press yeah. conference. Yeah. Well, I think what happened was um, he lost his temper mm. um, somewhat and uh, misspoke, to use that, that ugly phrase, uh, mm. said something he probably shouldn't well, have said. Apparently he overspoke, and, according to um, yeah. certain government yeah. ministers today. Yeah. Is, I, I haven't right. heard that one before, overspoke. Yeah. So overspoke, misspoke, whatever. And as a result, News Corp have gone ballistic. And of course, what he's done is he, he can't bite the hand that feeds him as it were, which is News Corp, because they, they largely support the coalition. So immediately he had to do a mere culpa and re retraction and, you know, eat humble pie or whatever else um, to get back on side. But my own personal feeling, and this is very much a personal feeling, is that that he crossed a sort of line in the Rubicon yesterday. And I think you'll find that News Corp's support for his um, premiership will start to wane now and they'll begin to think this is no longer our guy and we don't really you mm -hmm. know, trust him. Although at the end of the day, News Corp will keep, will keep supporting him as long as they think that you know, he can actually lead the Liberals or the coalition to victory in the next election. When Facebook kicked all of Australia's media off the platform, what was, what was your reaction? Um, I think that was a um, another ugly phrase, a come to Jesus moment sort of thing for many of the media to just realise that how much they relied upon Facebook, um, huge reliance on Facebook to distribute their content. Um, and numbers just plummeted, you know, from the moment that happened. So that was on, on that side of the, um, uh, of the uh, agenda. Um, on the other side, um, you had um, Facebook thinking, oh, my God, you know, we've kind of overstepped and there's going to be so much hostility towards our brand um, and, you know, we better repair it. 
Because one of the key things, Tina, and I haven't really mentioned this to you, is that Australia is being watched by the rest of the world. You know, what happens here, you know, could affect other jurisdictions. Mm. So they're all watching to see what, what happens. And they're all really, you know, hoping that the publishers, you know, would really hold their ground against mm. Facebook and, and Google. But Google have very cleverly just gone around just buying people off. Because you've got to remember that Google is one of the richest companies in the world. And if they can buy off a small territory like Australia, because Australia is tiny for them, mm -hmm. despite, you know, taking out about five billion in advertising, that's still a tiny amount compared to, you know, the European countries and so on. So I think they just had to close down, put out the fires in Australia as quickly as possible and just buy people off. And of course, because the media are in a weak position they just all are just saying, oh, thank you, Mr. Google. You know, thank you for the money, you know, because we really need it. So I think it's a kind of, again, a bit of a dependency culture in Australia that the media has towards mm -hmm. Google, which is Google helps, you know, both spread our content because it gives it greater profile and brings readers back to us. Uh, but they also eat our advertising cake. Um, so um, I, I don't think there's a an elegant solution in Australia. And I think... You know, I think they'll have to come back to this again. But what has happened in the short term is I think Google and Facebook have put out the fires in Australia mm -hmm. so they don't spread to the rest of the world. We've already spoken about media innovation, and I'd like to get your thoughts on diversity in, in the media landscape. The level of yeah. concentration, it's really only increased since you were last on. What are your mm. thoughts on media diversity in Australia? I mean, we're basically essentially being left with two large players and a public broadcaster, which is you know largely underfunded. Do you think it's a sustainable model? It just depends on, on how you define sustainable. But um, look, when I first came to Australia, uh, and by the way, it's Mark Scott, who, uh, who then went on to lead the ABC mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when he was editorial director of Fairfax, he appointed me. And when I came, um, or should I say before I came, I sort of read up quite a bit about the media market. And I have to tell you, it is probably the most concentrated media market in the world mm. um, with one big beast or one big player, which is News Corp which, by the way, has massively grown from when I came. So first of all, they swallowed up APN papers in mm -hmm. Queensland, which is, you know, virtually, you know, made all of Queensland a one paper uh, state because mm -hmm. they've got the Courier Mail and they've got everything else, you know, virtually all the other papers in the state. But they've also grown since I came Sky and um, and Sky at Night. And, you know, it's got a very, it's, it's apparently they've got the, the most popular... Yeah, they've got the most popular YouTube channel now, which is going gangbusters as well. So if anything, they've increased. And there's something something else has happened, which is when I came, there was News Corp and there was Fairfax. Um, so you had, um, you know, two different groups. And within Fairfax, the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age that I ran were quite independent papers. You know, we would read... You know, we would lead with quite different stories. We had different political lines, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Now... The Fairfax papers are essentially all merged. That's got one back office, merged back office, where all national, all national politics, all national uh, news, all international news, all business, uh, and many other areas are all pulled together and run out of Sydney. And what happens is that the age is very much just a branch office, which is able to do, uh, is left alone to cover AFL stories, mm -hmm. the opening of a new cafe or restaurant, house prices in Melbourne, and bad behaviour on the trams or whatever, you know, and that's, that's the kind of extent, the rest of it is all just sent down the pipe from Sydney. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's a terrible state of affairs. So 
voices have gone out. You know, the age largely has been snuffed by uh, Sydney Morning Herald. And of course, the Finn is in there as well. So that's that's reduced the number of voices. And then um, and then, as I say, with um, with uh, Channel Nine or Nine Entertainment taking over Fairfax, that's again reduced the independence of Fairfax. It's now just part of Nine, so that's reduced it. Channel Nine or Nine Entertainment is chaired by Peter Costello, yes. former tr- Liberal Treasurer. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got he's a very powerful influence on the whole company. Um, then you've got Rupert Murdoch and his his people running it as well with their own agenda. Um, and the only sort of independent voice you've got left is the ABC. And the ABC, as you said in your question, is severely underfunded. I actually looked at what the BBC gets in the UK and did a pro rata because the, the, the UK population is 63, 64 million and Australia is 25 million. Mm-hmm. So if you take a third, you know, the, 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 the ABC is probably underfunded by, you know, 50 percent on what it should be if you did a pro rata with the BBC. Um, so, as you know, every year they put a standstill every year. They ask for efficiency, uh, efficiency drives or whatever. Um, and, you know, it really struggles. And but but that said, uh, I do think they're still doing some incredibly good journalism, which you wouldn't you know read about or view uh, in on the commercial stations. Now, there's one last bit. Sorry for the long answer. But AAP, as you probably know, went bust last year mm-hmm. because News Corp and Nine Entertainment pulled the pin on it. And the reason they pulled the pin was that they thought, why should we be funding, because they put in between them probably about half the money, why should we be funding an Australian wire agency that essentially is being used by our competitors and we're kind of paying mostly for it? So they pulled the pin on that. um, And as a result, it, um, it was going to go bust and it was saved by some philanthropists and others. But it's a it's a much reduced service on what AAP used to be, and News Corp um, had to have a or agree to or forced to agree to a non compete clause of six months, which ran out in February this year, um, and and News Corp wanted to launch Newswire, which is their competitor to AAP. So suddenly you've got a much reduced uh, AAP with much reduced funding will be up against a mighty competitor at News Corp uh, launching their own wire service and going to all the clients of the, 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 the remaining AAP and saying, why don't you come to us and you know, we'll charge you less. So if, if the AAP collapses, then you've got even more mm-hmm. concentration Australia, which is, which is terrible. And that's something I worry about enormously. Um, and it goes back to your point. Why? Because it reduces diversity of opinion uh, across Australia. Indeed. Having an ex-editor of The Age and The Observer on the on the program, I can't help but ask you about the reckoning in Canberra. Are you surprised about the revelations that are coming out? Um, that sounds like a no. No, it, 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 it is. Yeah, it probably is a no. I mean, look, um, we're all aware of that mm. sort of slightly toxic macho culture. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, it's, it's, it's just not one that um, I, I don't, I mean, for example, that drinking in Manica and all that, I've, mm. I've never been to those bars, but it goes on. Um, the use that, you know, many, many journalists are inebriated and then go back to Parliament House and, and because they, you know, had too much to drink, they misbehave. There's on top of that now, a lot of drugs are used as well. Um, you know, there's just a, a rather 
bad culture. But what's most important thing is that once you're in um, the precincts of the parliament, you know, you're pretty well exempt from anything ever happening to you because, you know, you, you can pretty well do and, and act as you will. So, you know, I was pretty shocked by that Four Corners program, which said that, you know, uh, that Brittany Higgins and, and the, the, the guy, we don't know his name, you know, at two in the morning turned up at Parliament and just demanded to be allowed to be let in. And mm. the security guards couldn't really stop them because the rules there are the security guards can let in, you know, people who've got passes, as it were. And although they didn't physically have their passes with them, which was odd, they they checked their names and, yes, they were registered and they could go in. And, and you know, what happened was just absolutely appalling. Um, so in a sense, it's kind of anything goes within that place. And I don't think that's the behavior of all the media by any means, by the way. I think there's just, you know, a certain tranche of the media that, that um, you know, they just love the whole power thing that goes on in, in Canberra. Um, and I think that this has been a festering sore, as it were. And with the revelations, everyone that's coming out, you know, the, the layers of the onion are being peeled. And I think, well, I hope something will happen. Why I say I hope is that, you know, in Scott Morrison, um, I don't really, and it's not just me, um, I think many people wonder whether he's actually, you know, got the wit to really deal with this problem firmly uh, once and for all and just draw a line in the sand and said no more. These stories are being driven uh, by brave women largely coming forward, but also by the ABC and News Corp. How do you judge the performance of the media in all of this? Look, it's a difficult answer, uh, question uh, to answer because um, there are very, very, I mean, you've got to remember that um, the relationship between journalists in Canberra and politicians is extremely close. One needs the other. They feed off each other. You know, the politicians crave, you know, publicity. The journalists crave, uh, you know, exclusives. So they kind of spend a lot of time buttering up each other, you know, going out for dinners and don't forget everything is paid for, you know, on your expenses. So it's not actually out of your own mm. money. Mm. Um, and and um, in the case of the ABC, um, uh, I just think it's done some incredibly brave uh, journalism, particularly through obviously the Four Corners stuff that's been done. Um, and for actually, uh, in a sense, addressing and questioning and challenging what's going on, uh, it, it, with politicians, um, it's ended up with Christian Porter taking out what will probably be the largest, most expensive defamation action ever taken against the ABC um, by the government, um, and particularly by its principal law officer. So, you know, it's 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 very very serious stuff, and um, you know, it's going to be huge when it comes out, and who knows where it's going to go. But it tends to be in Australian courts that the media tend to lose out in these big cases. Um, so um, I, I just don't know how that's going to go. It's going to be very interesting. But at the heart of it is, uh, I guess, you know, freedom of the press to publish uh, information, which needs to be obviously accurate. And I think they will, their case would based on veracity, you know, which is this is checked um, and we know this to be the case, mm. but it will be challenged. But no, you're right. I mean, I mean, you know, going back to my earlier question, you know, thank God we do have an independent ABC. 
which is not so much in hock to the government, but you've got to remember that the ABC is funded by the government, mm. um, whereas the relationship in the UK is it's funded through uh, license uh, payers, viewers and uh, uh, who, who pay a license fee. So there is a kind of an arm's length relationship between the government and the BBC, whereas here it's directly funded by government. Mm. And the government can, if they want to, um, um, you know, penalise the ABC for uh, acts which it considers to be wrong. And that's happened many times, you know, that the, your, your reward for doing something has been to, to you know, either have a standstill budget or a reduction. Finally, let's end on a positive note. Where do you see the conversation in 10 years and where would you like to see the media in general? Well, uh, the first thing is just to remind you that um, I left the conversation in 2017 yes. and I started work on 2010. So I did seven years, pretty mm-hmm. full on years doing. Um, I was the chief fundraiser mm-hmm. was my idea in a sense. And I had to fundraise to make it happen. Mm-hmm. I then was the editor of it. I was also the kind of the CEO uh, I was doing ambassadorial roles. And then, as, as I said to you earlier, I was helping uh, launches in UK, US and all over the place. So I was pretty worn out. And I, I then uh, decided, well, I was invited to, to move across to RMIT, but I'm yeah. now at Monash University. So I'm kind of doing just working in different areas. So I, I'm no, no longer at the conversation. Um, but my, my feelings are that, one, the business model, commercial model of membership will, in, will, will endure into the future. So I think financially it's, it's secure. Two, I think there'll probably be more launches. Um, most of the launches there now are the ones that I actually was involved in helping happen. There's been a bit of a standstill because mm-hmm. of you know economic conditions around the world. Um, so there's been a bit of a standstill, but uh, I predict there'll be more of them. But I think the idea, you know, is I mean the, the readership and audience increasing every year. Um, the second part of your question was more to do with what the, the rest of the media in Australia. Yeah. I'd like to see the ABC properly funded, and uh, mm-hmm. but I only see that happening under a Labour government because mm-hmm. I think Labour uh, believe more in public services, which includes the ABC, than the other side, which believes in the commercial delivery of information um, and news. Um, so uh, I'd like to see the ABC properly funded. And by the way, I don't mean incrementally. I mean, you know, like an extra 50% budget mm-hmm. to properly cover, you know, uh, regional, rural, uh, Australia, specialist journalism and all the areas that, you know, commercial people don't do, including drama uh, and entertainment. Uh, no, sorry, not so much entertainment, drama and serious entertainment, mm-hmm. and documentaries, mm-hmm. things like that. Um, and in terms of the rest of the, the media, um, sadly, I think if the AAP goes bust, I think that's going to be a really bad thing for Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, there'll be, I, I don't see anybody curtailing News Corp's ambitions to really set the agenda in Australia. And they go one step further, particularly with the Australian, which kind of de- uh, defines uh, through its columns what is Australian, what is un-Australian, mm-hmm. which means that the areas that they back and the areas that they're against so I, I, I really worry about all that. I do hope that, like me, more and more people will read things like I read the New York Times, Washington Post, The Guardian, mm-hmm. The Financial Times and others. And I hope that will continue because that does allow you to get news from other places. But in terms of Australian coverage, I'm worried um, uh, about the future. And I, I would like to see an antidote to the nine papers, nine entertainment and, and um, the News Corp through a better funded ABC at the very least. 
Well, on that note, Andrew Jaspin, a very big thank you for joining us on Fourth Estate. My pleasure. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week. But in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. Many thanks to my executive producer, Anthony Dockrell. My name's Tina Quinn. Thanks for listening.